try to do tonight since that uh, uh, everybody here is a believer and and as one that believes in the, the importance of teaching this information to others I thought we'd have a study just on how to present the Christian message to others and uh, the uh, in fact I believe there are a number of people that uh, that feel you know strong there and and actually know the importance and all of it but yet by the same token sometimes don't know exactly where they should start or how to approach or how to reach another person I know that was that was my position for some time when I first first became a Christian uh, first of all I think it's good to look at the importance of the subject to God that uh, when it comes to uh, presenting this message to others we have recorded in the Gospels the the last statement by Jesus where he actually emphasized this this is the last thing we read in the Gospels everybody if you want to turn to Matthew 28 18 through 20 and then at the same time when you have 28 18 through 20 hit mark 16 15 and 16 and I've got Luke 24, 46 through 49, but you don't have to turn there. That just hit those first two spots. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and Mark uh, 16, 15 and 16. Okay, uh, Barbara, read that on Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age okay now read that Matthew Mark 16 15 and 16 Mark he said to them go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation whoever believes and is baptized will be saved but whoever does not believe will be condemned and these things, and these signs will. Okay, that's good right there. On there. All right, now, Luke 24, 46 through 49 is the same thing. It, it's sending them out that this message was to begin at Jerusalem and go out to the ends of the earth. And they were to preach repentance for the, for the mission of sins to all the nations. All right, notice then, here's the, the apostles that he's talking to in context. And he spent about approximately three and a half years with them. Nobody he spent more time with than these disciples. And now after his resurrection, his last words, last recorded words to them is to get out and present this message and try and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them whatsoever things I've commanded you. So Jesus himself, the Son of God, spent his adult life, his mature adult life, beginning with age 30, teaching uh, salvation. Uh, that, that was it. He was teaching repentance to Israel. He was pre preparing them for salvation. That was his message. And so we're dealing with something that when God's own son, uh, identified to us as son, came to this earth, he spent his life in preparation to simply teach others the good, this good news, and then he did it. I mean, uh, he could have done anything he wanted to. He could have, Jesus could have been the greatest engineer, the greatest doctor, the greatest lawyer, uh, the greatest of anything, and, and yet he spent his time 
with this one concept, all right? Then, after spending all the time, let's look at these apostles. Uh, they are fishermen, and, and they're, not, they're not quite like sometimes they've been portrayed uh, uh, as just, you know, some uh, person that didn't know anything. The, all the evidence is that Peter, Andrew, James, and John owned their own business, and they had su uh, servants that worked for them, that they didn't just work as a hired hand. They owned their own boats. They had servants that worked for them. They would have been comparable to a successful business person of today. Matthew was a publican. He made good money, or it was, uh, something was wrong. I mean, they, he was a publican. Uh, the Jew took that position for one reason, and that is to make an income. And so these people have been with Jesus for three and a half years. He says, I'm going to make you fishers of men now. And he sends them out and tells them to take this message into the entire world. Now, the historical record is that these apostles spent the rest of their life putting all emphasis on getting this message to the whole world, and it was so important to them that they were willing to be beaten and spit on. They were willing to go to jail. They were willing to go to their death. And so we, we know how important something is by what a person is willing to give up in order to do it. And so these people were all so convinced that they gave up their life in order to do it. Now, another thing to keep in mind that we can pray all we want for the salvation of people, but we know that our prayers are conditioned on the will of God. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. If we pray and ask anything in keeping with his will, we know that he hears us. Well, God's will is that everybody hear the message through fellow human beings that are presenting it. Romans 10, 13 through 17. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, but how shall they call on whom and him and whom they haven't heard, and shall, how shall they hear except a preacher be sent? And then he goes on to say that so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And how beautiful are the glad feet of those who take the glad tidings of the gospel of peace. And so the message is going to go out entirely through human agency. That's, that's part of the will of God. So from an important standpoint, you'd have to say that there is nothing that a Christian can do in the eyes of God that is any more important than taking this message to others. And I don't care how godly he is in his own present life. Christianity would have died if the apostles just lived godly lives and went to the grave. And, and it's true in any community. Uh, I don't care how godly every member of the church is. I don't, it doesn't matter that they put, the, put it into practice and they reap all kinds of benefits themselves. The church in that community will die if they don't teach somebody else. And there are those that, that say, well, you teach by your life. Uh, your life, I don't care how well it's lived, does not prove the death, burial, and resurrection to Jesus. What your life does do is say that, hey, that philosophy of life works, and it can attract tension. But if you don't use the attraction that you have got as a result of a sex successful life to then teach them about Jesus, it doesn't do anything for them. And I, I know I'm 50 years of age now, and I have known any number of people in the church through the years that have lived very godly lives and have never one single solitary time led another person to Christ. They just simply haven't done it. That they, they, I've seen them in church. They're there every time the church door is open. Uh, they give money. They do things. They may do things that indirectly and all, but I'm saying I've, there are people that have never had the time, say, of 
And I'm not saying they have to teach them all that. I'm saying there are people that have never had even the, the experience of inviting somebody to church and then that person get converted. They, they've never had the experience of talking to them about the Lord and, and watch maybe somebody else finish teaching them and, and they be baptized. They just simply have never had that experience. And I would suggest to you that the majority of Christians fall in that category, that they have never had the experience of actually talking to a person who was an unbeliever and then somewhere down the line watching that go to its fruitation and that person become a Christian. And Christianity depends on uh, you and I getting the word out, okay? Now, and the importance also, keep in mind that, uh, that uh, God, the, the teaching of the Bible is that God loves everybody. He loves the homosexual. He loves the drug addict. Uh, he loves the thief out there. He loves the robber. He loves the murderer. Uh, he hates the sin, but he truly loves the sinner. And uh, there's no better picture of that than Luke 15, where Jesus is being criticized because of spending so much time with the sinners. And he told them that, uh, you know, it was the sick that needed a doctor. And there's where we get the parable of the prodigal son that he was trying to convey to these people who were criticizing him the importance of reaching out to people that were not right with God. He said there was more joy in heaven over one sinner that repented than over 99 righteous. And you can see that anybody that has children, if you've got one that's absolutely lost and you don't know where in the world they're at, and then they're found, there's going to be more happiness there over than over the however many you've got that's perfectly sound. Well, then, if, if we can identify with how much we think of our children, that's the relationship God uses to describe himself to us as father. And so if you think of your child and uh, what you would feel if one of your children were out here uh, doing something that was simply going to take their life and uh, how you would feel about that, well, then that's God's position towards everybody. And so it doesn't matter whether they're black, white, male, or female, homosexuals or heterosexual or what, God loves every one of them. And so all we've established here is the Bible makes it very clear that it's extremely important for us taking the message to others, and there are people that believe that they have to go to church, that they have to sing, that they have to do any number of things, but never get around to actually taking this message to others. Um, before moving to the next part on that, anybody want to offer any comments as to why you think that the majority of Christians really do not get actively involved in their life at trying to get this message across to others? I think a couple of things. That you don't understand fully the implications of what you are believing and that it's, it's you know, people just don't see God, you know, in a they can't communicate with him in a direct way, and it just lose sight. They, you know, in the world, the influences around become so overwhelming that, well, you know, I'll go to church, but uh, and I'll pray, and hopefully things will turn out okay, and pray for others, and uh, that, and not knowing what you believe. I mean, just taking it on what the preacher says and not studying it yourself. I think would be a, and again, being mistaught, accepting like you know, don't drink and and don't smoke and don't associate. Yeah. I mean, that kind of thing, too. Uh, I think about when you mention about uh, Jesus associating with the publicans, Paul makes a good comment on the uh, in 1 Corinthians on how that, you know, he didn't say don't associate with the world. If that were the case, you have to leave the world. Right. But 
You know, he said, when you're among yourselves, then judge. But when you're out in the world, you know, you have to try to win others. And I just think a lot of just the misteaching and people being willing to accept what the preacher says and not studying it themselves. Okay, so you're saying the inability to articulate what they believe deep down and also... Being afraid. Okay. Because they can't. And, and, well, they may not know, can't back up what they're saying is what I'm saying. Okay. It's just like, you know, if they go out and they say, you need to believe in Jesus. Well, why? Well, because it's so. I mean, you know, believe in Jesus. That's the way to go. And they don't have the ammunition to, to you know, they don't understand fully what's going on. They may be, I'm not saying they're not good, have okay. good intentions. Right. You know? I'm just saying that they just don't know, and they can't, they just don't know, and they're I'm afraid. They're afraid, and they don't know how. And I think some people know in their own mind, too, but it's something else when you get ready to teach somebody else to articulate yeah. it. And, yeah. And I think sometimes we're just afraid of what they might ask us, and we may not, and may not be able to answer it. Yeah. And really, we that shouldn't bother us. We should say, "Well, I don't know that, you know, but I'll try to find out." Yeah. You think maybe too that it's like selling anything, afraid of rejection. Mm -hmm. yeah. That uh, that you that you brought up something that, uh, and here you've got a friendship with this person. And they may make it very clear to you that they want no part of it, and just that, just that idea of re rejection and everything. I know the few times I've had an experience of selling something, you know, I always felt that, you know, that uh, that you've got to, you know, that most are going to say no, and that is a difficult thing. And I know I, in talking with Hugh, you know, he was telling me that was the the first thing he had to overcome to be successful in selling was the fear of just rejection and learn how to, when somebody rejects and makes it clear that they don't want it, you just go right on to the next person. But, but yet that's, that's a real blow to your ego and everything. When a person just comes right out, it makes it clear they don't want what you've got to offer. You know, I think Brother Andrews made a, a good point on that when we went down in Jessup. He, I, I thought he worded it real well. He said, you know, the work was really difficult down in that area. And he said, it would be really good for us to keep in mind that God didn't expect us, didn't command us to convert anybody. That he just asked that we teach the word, that we put it out. And I thought, you know, that was really a good concept. Yeah. I think that what she's convert, saying is right. To, just that if everybody gets it in their mind, number one, the Jesus is not commanding you to convert. He's saying to teach, but then he's promising you that the word would not return void. He's saying that if you do, if you go out and sow seed, uh, you're going to reap something as a result of it. You don't know where it's going to be. All right, now, what I'd like to do then, we've, uh, anybody else have any comment on that? I, uh, one thing that, that, that makes it difficult, uh, I don't know, I don't, uh, I may have in the past, now I don't really have so much a, a fear of rejection or anything like that, but the, the biggest factor that makes it difficult for me is, is simply, uh, sometimes it's just not, I mean, I hate to use the word, but it's not convenient. Uh, like, if you're not involved with a church in a particular area that this person can, you can ask him to become involved with, and, it, and it's not its not like that. The, the whole burden of bringing that person to Jesus is on your back. And that if you had, you know, an organization that you were a part of, that you were working with, people that could help you, people that would make an effort to get to know this guy, and then the, mm. the whole burden would be on you. That's one thing. I think that it helps an awful lot if you're a part of a bigger organization and you're not out there trying to do it by yourself. And then the other thing is that the biggest hindrance, maybe the second big, biggest hindrance for me, is uh, is uh, 
uh, selfishness with my time. Um, sometimes I wonder if I'm almost afraid somebody would take me up and want to want to stay because I, I don't really want to spend the time. I don't have the time, you know. I think, yeah. and you know, I've got this, that, and the other going, and I don't have the time to to get yeah, totally uh, absorbed in this person's life. I think what you're saying on that number one, that is, I think we have a go-go society. And we all just about are on the go, and our and time is meaningful to us. And then I think what you said is something that we need to look at too, that we live in a very transit society, and so you just like you're going to school, uh, almost 50 miles from here, and, and people up here, like in our congregation here, the uh, men that would be in the age category to reach others and all, like uh, that are working a job, supporting their families and things like that, they all work in Chattanooga. And I've had several of them say to me that they'd get in conversations with, with people, but obviously nobody's going to drive from Chattanooga all the way up here to go to services. And I would say that's true that in uh, most areas anymore, the people that live in a community, everybody drives off some distance to work, and that uh, you regularly maybe meet people, but that where you worship would not actually be a convenient place for them. Okay, I think that's a good thing we need to look at in here also. Well, I think Larry Locke made a real good point, too, talking about selfishness of our time and all, and I, I think that is true. He pointed out that Alcoholics Anonymous, that they have a, a thing, a big buddy type thing, and that when somebody comes to Alcoholics Anonymous, that they have somebody assigned to them, and every single day for 90 days, that person, that big brother, contacts them every night and offers their support or has them over to eat or does something with them. And I thought, if somebody can do that for, you know, for things that are physical, couldn't we put more time into people with something that's as important as eternity? But I, I think you're right on that. Though. Yeah. I think the what we're seeing there, though, is that one of the reasons we don't as much is sacrifice is required. That uh, And I know myself that uh, all of us have the same weaknesses and all, and it's something where you have to dig down that, uh, that you know, I work at a full-time job, and then I have the lessons at church, and then we have the study here, and then I have my studies, and sometimes I feel it's, it's uh, and of course we've got the size of our family and everything like that, 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 it, that I just don't have room to breathe, and but then if there's... Uh, uh, maybe that uh, I do have, you know, a, another afternoon that I could actually do something. And there's a, the thing, well, I've just literally got to have, you know, a certain amount of time, you know, and everything. But I think that uh, there is sacrifice. Uh, Mark, you know from your experience already of having a study in your home, it's a sacrifice. Just like when Barbara and I came in last time. Well, I know that, uh, that you and Nancy worked for hours getting ready for that. People don't realize that. Uh, that, uh, you know, I tell them just like it, what we have tried over here to get people to have Bible studies in their home, just like we always tell them that there's people that'll come here in a house that won't go in that church building and that you can study in a better way. The study is more intimate. People will speak up better. It's more, it's more comfortable and, and, and you can be more personal and the whole and meet specific needs and everything like that. And I know that one of the reasons is that people don't want to make this. There is a sacrifice. You, you work all week. And so then on Friday night or Saturday or whenever you do, you, it, it's not a matter of just opening your door, say at 7 or 7.30, whatever time. It takes several hours to get ready for the study. You clean your house and everything like that, and you provide refreshments. It takes several hours to prepare the lesson materials itself and all. 
And so there, if you're going to do that on a regular basis, and you really can't do any good unless you do it on a regular basis, that there is a sacrifice. So I think that one thing we can say at the very beginning, nobody is going to do it without sacrificing. I think in our society, we put a lot of emphasis on pleasure right now. I really do. Uh, I've been into ball and all that as much as anybody, uh, but I've reached the point, to, to be honest with you, where a lot of ball just turns my stomach because I, I see that people are getting so enthused over something that is so meaningless and, and yet not having the time uh, for, the, for this right here. And uh, I think we ought to re-examine that type thing. But then on the sacrifice, number one, think of Jesus. He gave everything. Okay? Think of the apostles. We, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the apostles. They gave up everything. Uh, forget about religion. Everybody that has ever really accomplished anything in any walk of life has had to work hard and sacrifice in order to do it. Uh, that Mandela that's uh, touring the country right now spent 27 years in prison because of his convictions. He spent years getting a law degree in a nation that had everything in the world against him. He has made a multitude of sacrifices, but now he's, he's going all over the world and he's making more of an impact than anybody from that nation. And, but he's, he has sacrificed and, and studied and everything. When he gets a chance to talk, we mentioned that you need to have something to say. He can articulate in a very uh, meaningful way uh, what, what he wants to say. All right? You're gonna, there's sacrifice in time as far as having anybody in your house or going to theirs. Also, uh, what Mark mentioned, the ability to articulate, it takes work. There's, there's just like you, you can't pass a course in college unless you study the material. You, you have to be willing to do it. And in the same way, nobody is going to be able to articulate and deal with this in a right way if they're not willing to study. And, I, and I mean, by study, I mean more than even just reading the Bible. Uh, don't, uh, and we'll get into that, not tonight, but it later, later on this same topic. But it takes study. And, and a lot of people out there that are given answers for Christianity are doing more damage than good. I mean, uh, sometimes when I watch some of the things on TV, it just breaks my heart, really, to see that some of these people up there are saying those things and representing Christianity in that way. And I'm talking about the hucksters, uh, the Jim and T uh, Tammy type person, or whoever it is that's, that's up there representing Christianity. Okay, so we see it, it's definitely important, but the reasons why we don't do it when we get right down to it, there's nothing there that says we can't do it. The question is, are we willing to make the sacrifice? Are we willing to allow somebody to say no and to, be re and to reject us? Uh, are we willing to set aside the time to study? Are we willing to set aside the time to have people in our homes or to get into their homes? Uh, these people that are, have their lives all messed up, it's not good enough just to have a study with them. If you're not willing to get involved in their lives, I think you're just about wasting their time. They honestly need somebody to get involved in their lives in a very personal way. And a lot of people in church who may not be professional teachers and who may not even be real knowledgeable, who don't have a good education, they need to be convinced that they can be a tremendous asset to those that are teaching by being willing to get involved in somebody's lives. I mean, just having that person over to a, in a Christian family setting is something positive. All right, now, what I'd like to do now, starting there, is... Uh, point out some things that ought to give us confidence when it comes to presenting this message. I mean, this is, this is what I've done a lot of thinking about and, and why that you ought to have confidence. And I, 
one reason I honestly believe that I've always had so much confidence in this area is because that I approach Christianity from the standpoint of a skeptic. Uh, and, and I was very skeptical. I challenged every part of it, and yet I became a Christian. And so it doesn't bother me that somebody out there doesn't believe in Jesus. Uh, it doesn't bother me that somebody out there is not what he should be because, you know, I wasn't what I should be either. Uh, and so that, that I think the, the things that we can keep in mind that ought to give you confidence as you're presenting this to anybody. Number one, uh, <clears throat> every single solitary person in this world is made in the image of God, even the atheist. He's made in the image of God. He's made just like you are. He has the same sense of ought or conscience that you have. Uh, he has a will. He has intellect. He has emotions. Uh, the same things that turn you on uh, emotionally and all, turn him on also. Okay, so they're all made in the image of God. In other words, everybody is a brother in that sense. Uh, you, you're, you're not, they're not strangers out there. They're brothers in that sense. Okay, now, being made in the image of God, these people inwardly, no matter what they're practicing in life, I don't care if they're out there boozing it up every night, or they're stealing, or they're fighting, or what, they inwardly identify and man, we would be much more bold, I think, if people realize this, they inwardly identify with God's law. I don't care if they've never read one page in the Bible. Romans 2, 14 through 16. I'll just uh, paraphrase it, and you can read it on your own. Romans 2, 14 through 16. Paul said, The Gentiles who did not have a law were a law unto themselves, in that the law was written on their own conscience, that from their own nature... They perceive the things of the law and their own conscience condemned them or excused them based on the, the gospel that he was preaching. And he was saying that Gentiles who never read one word of the law of Moses, that, that they had come to perceive that it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to cheat, it's right to love, it's right to be kind. And, and the way they perceive that is in any number of ways. One is that Anything you wouldn't want somebody doing to you, you've got a sense of ought. And that sense of ought is such that if you would not want somebody doing it to you, you cannot in good conscience do it to others. I don't believe in, in it, that we live in a society that makes every excuse in the book for, for people's mistakes. You know, they, uh, well, if you were brought up like I was, you know, you'd be that way too. I don't believe anybody ever stole anything and it didn't prick their conscience. I don't believe anybody ever hurt another person and it didn't hurt their conscience. I'm talking about when they first start to do those things. I don't believe anybody ever cheated or lied or anything, but that their own conscience set in judgment on them. And so that everybody is made an image of God. In inwardly, they relate to that law. Okay, passage is another passage, Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. Moses told the Jews that if they would obey this law, that the other nations would observe them and they would say, hey, what nation is like these people? What nation has such righteous laws? What nation has a God like them? And what he was saying there is that this law is right. And just as the Eastern European people have come to observe that capitalism has, works a lot better than socialism, we just simply have more than they do. And, and they have, and despite all the years of brainwashing, 
the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and they have rejected. And, and they're, they're coming to what is right. And I'm saying just in the same way, now think of that, because they're a real lesson, I believe, that those people that are in our age category, my age and you all that are younger, all their life they've known nothing but communism. They've gone to school where they taught, were taught communism. They've been, that our way of life has been totally put down to them. And, and so they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Our, our people are just enslaved to the way they were brought up. Well, then what in the world caused those people to throw off their shackles and to desire a, to desire a dem democratic form of government and to desire a capitalistic system? It's simply they're made an image of God and they've got intelligence and they've observed that one system works better than the others and we may as well admit it. it it's, it's that simple. And so Moses was telling the people that, that this is right and other people will observe if you'll obey it now. Other people observe that we don't have a law that's comparable to this. And that when these other people all have their idols, and they will observe, we don't have a God like Israel. See, Israel's God was merciful and kind and, and protectorate of them. And, uh, their gods were, were savages, and they committed adultery, and, and they did all kinds of things. Their gods were just like them. But Israel's God was a holy God that was above all, and, and who, who only commanded those things that are obviously right. All right, then the next one is Matthew 5, 13 through 16, when Jesus told us that we would be a light to the world, and if we did certain things, uh, his teachings, that people would glorify God on behalf of our good works. Notice the assumption that's made there. The assumption is made that, that even if they hadn't read the Bible, they call certain things good and bad, and that they would identify with this as being good. And so that this thing that we're made an image of God and we inwardly identify with God's law, the, uh, any time that Christians are told to be a light in the world and to allow their good deeds to shine, all of that goes with the assumption that that person out there has made an image of God and inwardly he identifies with what's right. So I'm saying that, that you and I ought to have confidence if you're truly living the Christian life. You're living a life that is appealing even to people that are not living that. Uh, when I was not a Christian, people that, that were honest and kind and courteous, etc., were always more appealing to me than the, the opposite. They always were. They, they just simply were uh, more, of a, more appealing than the other type, and I believe everybody out there is in the same boat. That, uh, they're, they're, that's, it's right, and it literally stands out. But we can also see a potential problem here. If we remember that that ought to give us confidence, everybody's made an image of God. So if on the job you're honest, you're fair, you're kind towards other people, uh, you're courteous, and these principles that you're voicing are in that way, inwardly they're identifying, but then what happens if on the job or at school you're really not living the teaching yourself? I think sometimes that has to do with Christians not teaching others too, that their own lives, and of course even the best of us are sinners, and we make yeah. all kinds of mistakes, it probably would be good if all of us prefaced any teaching with them. You know, we're not perfect, but... But you really, I think Jesus. that... I really don't believe people expect perfection. Uh, I really don't. Uh, I think they expect sincerity and honesty, and uh, the uh, nobody expects you to be perfect in anything, but I think they expect you to believe what is right and to be shooting in that direction, willing to admit you made a mistake, and, and things like that. Uh, 
when we say that a person is a good man, I believe that we all say it in a relative sense. We mean that in comparison to other men, you know, that he's a, that he's a good person. But I think that, uh, that I'm saying that when Christians use that, of like we're not perfect or anything like that, that I believe everybody recognizes that and that if we do this, it just simply stands out. To the, in, when you compare it to other people. I mean, we know nobody is 100% in, in, in any of those things. But I think what you said is right there, that I believe a lot of times Christians are not, uh, some are not aggressive in teaching because they're not leaving, living it themselves, and it's really no asset uh, to them. If I was using foul language on the job, I'd, I'd probably be embarrassed to admit that I went to church, much less invite anybody to services. Those kind of people aren't willing to make any kind of sacrifice, to, you know, to, to clean up their own lives, so they're surely not going to make a sacrifice to be teaching. Or if you're a person that's always flirting with, uh, the here you are a married person, and you're always flirting with the opposite sex, well, you're probably not going to say much about Christianity. You know, it would just be out of place. You know, it would, it would make you look like a hypocrite. And so you probably would, uh, would actually hide the fact, you know, or, or if there are other wrong things you like to do, you probably wouldn't say much about it because it would actually make you look, look like a hypocrite to the person. But I'm saying for the person that is converted and everything, one thing that ought to give him boldness, if he just keep it in his mind, that everybody out there is made in the image of God, and I don't have to hesitate to stand up for what is right because inwardly they're going to agree with it. Even though outwardly they don't practice it. If you stand up at a business meeting or whatever for honesty, and for fairness, and for doing things in a right way, or whatever it is, that inwardly people actually agree with that kind of thing, and that it would be this type of thing that, uh, that would cause people to be attracted in that direction. Uh, another thing that along that, remember Peter's statement that, that uh, people would ask you concerning the hope uh, that you have with, within you, and then be ready to give an answer, you know, at that point. All right, another... Uh, thing I think to keep in mind is that along, this is right along with that, and that is that God's law is absolutely perfect. Um, we don't have to apologize. We ought to walk and feel great. You've got something that's perfect. If, if I was, I mentioned earlier that, that I don't know that I could be a salesman in some things because of, uh, you know, the thing, you know, there, there are problems with the rejection, things like that. But even in the material world, if I was selling a product that I knew was better than any other product, and I mean I was honestly convinced of it, and the price was fair, I honestly believe I could sell it. Now where I have problems is when the product that I'm selling is no better than the other person, and yet I've got to try to persuade that person to buy from me because of friendship or whatever, and I have problems with that. But if I'm absolutely convinced that the product itself is, is absolutely, like for example, the, the problem I'd have in selling, uh, uh, say the thing with uh, L. Williams is a good example. The concept of, of get rid of your whole life and, uh, and invest the difference after buying the, the other type in term insurance, I could I sell that to anybody because that's right, you know, and I'm 100% confident. But then I get to the point where I'm offering, say, American Capital Comstock, but in my mind, I know that there are some no-load funds that actually perform better. But 
in order to make my living, I've got to do this right here. Well, see, that's where my problem comes in. That, that, that I, now, if American Capital Comstock was performing right up here, say, in the top five, then the whole shebang. But that was where my problem, you know, when we talked about that and Hugh had talked with me about it, is the fact that, you know, when I went and read consumers' reports and all the records, that was it. And if I was selling cars, if I was convinced that my car was the best car for the money, I could sell it. Okay, now what I'm saying with that is we've got all kinds of philosophies out there. Everybody is going to live by a philosophy of life. There's nobody out there that doesn't have a law that they're following. I mean, that's it. And, and the law that you're following is based on your philosophy of life. You can't live without law. So everybody's going to follow a philosophy of life. There's the existential philosophy that's so popular in higher education today. There's been a multitude of other philosophies. There's the hedonistic philosophy that's, that's very popular in our society today. The stoic philosophy has always had its adherence. There's rationalization. There's the practical type philosophy. There is all kinds of philosophy out there competing for the minds of people. But God's law is perfect. And, and you can literally take this law and stand it up against any philosophy of life and it'll come out on top. And, and, of course, again, you see the importance of the Christian actually living the law. But it literally will come out on top. And so I'm saying we've, we literally have the only perfect way of life that's available in the earth. The, if any, there are other things. Hinduism has a lot of good. But it's also got a lot of negative. All the good that's in Hinduism is in Christianity, but you don't have any of the negative. Uh, the Muslim religion has a lot of truths. But every truth that's in the Muslim religion is a part of Christianity, but then the bad that's part of the Muslim religion is not there. The Jew Jews have a lot of truth in their religion, but every truth they've got in their religion is in Christianity, and the negative parts are not there. And so that when you look at all the philosophies of life, the existential philosophy has something to offer, or it wouldn't have captured minds. I'm saying all of them have something to offer. But what is right about any one of them can be found in Christianity but then you drop off all the wrong. It's the only system that stands up absolutely 100% perfect any way you look at it. You can, and, and you can talk to people from the standpoint, here are the laws of Christ. And then let's say, let's take the laws of Christ and say, what happens to a community if everybody starts obeying that law? What happens to the nation? What happens to the world? How much of an army do we need? How much of a police force do we need? Uh, what happens to disease, you know, that you, you, the, the world just changes and every change it makes is for the good. And, and, and I don't know of any other system that you can put up alongside it. And so then the, the writers of the Bible were like David was impressed with the perfection of God's law. Uh, Solomon was impressed with it after he made all kinds of mistakes himself. And so I'm saying that there's no reason why we should be shy or afraid, or unaggressive, or anything, because the law is absolutely perfect, and it'll stand the test. When I'm arguing with the homosexual, you know, you can literally argue with him from statistics uh, as to what is happening, what is the best, the best way, and the way that works, or anything like that. When you're these people that are sexually permissive and are living with a lot of different ones, or or whatever, examine those lives and compare it with those individuals that pursue the law of marriage as set down in the Bible. I mean, what about Elizabeth Taylor? 
Does she have a happy, has she had a happy sexual life? Uh, what about those people like her? Uh, have they had happy lives? Are they content and are they satisfied with it? So I think that's one thing that the law itself is perfect. All right, another thing along with that is that the evidence for the existence of God is so strong that every individual that's ever walked this earth has at least found it thought-provoking. Most have found it overly persuasive. Uh, in the world today, over five and a half billion people, and it's estimated that well over 90% believe in a supreme being. In the United States, despite all the talk about atheism and all our education, kicking God out of the schools and doing everything we can to kick him out of society, we, we, we go out there with our surveys that are, if anything, biased against religion, and we find that 95% of our population believes in God, believes in a supreme being. And when we go all the way through history, we never find a society where most don't believe in a supreme being. So I'm saying we need to keep that in mind. That, hey, this guy out here, the atheist is only 5% of our population. And of that 5%, we each know of atheists. John Clayton is a good example that have been converted to Christianity. That, uh, the, so the, the evidence, like David said, the, the invisible God has been declared by the things that are. The, the, there is no excuse for rejection of God. Psalms 19, when he talked about the heavens declaring the glory of God. And I'm not going to go into all of that because we're all, we've all, we're all studied in that. But suffice to say, everybody here, I think, has the ability to use the cause and effect and, and some of the other arguments and all to deal with the existence of a creator. And so, and, and you look at yourself, everybody here tonight's an intelligent person. I mean, you, that uh, everybody here has the, uh, the, either has through college or has the ability to go through college uh, and, and go on further. There's not a person here. Think of all the various believers that we've had, like in the study. They're all intelligent people, and all of them are 100% convinced in the existence of a creator. Uh, and think of the geniuses out there that are absolutely, totally convinced. So we've got no reason to be intimidated or anything like that. So number one, the law is perfect. Number two, the evidences for a supreme being have overwhelmed the minds of the vast majority of people that have ever lived and, and live right now. And so that ought to give us confidence. All right, the next point, this will be uh, on, on the dealing with the resurrection. So far as talking to anybody about it, it, it seems to me that anybody would have to be interested in the resurrection, the possibility of it. Uh, when I was in high school and was not going to church, I was interested in it. You know, I didn't know the evidence was anywhere near as strong as what it was, and I was interested in it. Uh, it uh, I can't imagine anybody that's living in a body that he knows is going to die and saying, hey, I'm not even interested in, in whether or not there could be a resurrection. I, I can't imagine anybody like that. And so that uh, I think what we have done is that we have centered too much of Christianity around the church, and people think of us trying to reach them for our church group and our activities and our fellowship. But in the early church, the appeal that was always made was the resurrection. All, every single solitary sermon in Acts is dealing with the resurrection. And all through the letters, they're dealing with the resurrection. And all through the Gospels, everything's pointing to that, to that one event. And so that we have something that when we talk to this person, that 
again, Steve, getting back to this thing of what about this individual that's, you know, 40 miles away from the meeting place or whatever, or you don't have an organized body that you can refer him to, the number one thing is, is the resurrection. And if we realize that that is more important than be a right or wrong on some particular doctrine, or that he can have individual responsibility to go far beyond that once he, he hits that, that point. But he has to be interested in that. We're all dying. And again, the evidence for the resurrection has captured some of the very best minds that have ever lived in this world. And, and that right now there are multitudes of people in this world that were not brought up believing in the resurrection of Jesus that believe it without any doubt in their mind. And of course, we're all familiar with the, with the evidence there. Okay, anybody have anything on, to add to some of those points? Uh, I've got a comment on the evidence and all. Something I've been thinking about is uh, I was not brought up in a home where I, I had the evidence. But yet, you know, from my parents, I knew that, you know, I, I was pretty much believed in God. <laughs> How do you redact your teaching to... Like, you learn the evidence, like I've learned about evidences. Uh, I can't identify with someone like you that had to start out as a skeptic. How do I approach that? I mean, I found that the one couple of occasions I've had to talk about... Strong believer, first book I, book I was ever read was the Bible. You know, I was taught the Bible from childhood and was taken to church as a child. And then my stepfather was a skeptic. You know, he was not a believe, believed in a supreme being, but he didn't believe the Bible was inspired. So I'm saying my skeptic, the, probably, if, if both my parents had been a believer, I probably wouldn't have had that skepticism. But he was the well-read one, much better read than she was, and everything like that, and was definitely uh, skeptical. But I think that everybody in their mind, so, we got rid of it. deep down, has some questions. In other words, that when you read through, even young, and you read about those miracles, you have to think, I haven't seen a miracle. And, and then you wonder, can I be positive of that? And I know that cro always crossed my mind that, and I, a lot of these people that say they're sure and haven't studied evidences, I don't believe it. I guess one thing, I've conducted too many funerals and I've visited too many sick people before they died. And if they're so absolutely positive, why so then why scared? do I see so many Christians that's scared out of their mind when it, when, it, when it comes to the subject of death? Why do I go to funerals, these people that claim belief in the Holy Spirit and, and the gifts and all, and yet one of their members dies and they, they wail and carry on and, and, uh, and it's just like they're beside themselves that God has dealt the most crushing blow possible to them and everything. And by the way, I'm not saying it's wrong to cry or anything like that, but I'm talking about approaching it from the standpoint that I just can't understand God on this one, you know, or, or anything like that, you know. And and there's no real, or, or when they visit, uh, you know, fellow Christians, they don't really give them a lot that helps them out or anything like that. So I'm saying that I believe the human mind deep down has doubt about anything it doesn't have evidence for. And I think a lot of times we can be in a society where we can be intimidated like you don't want to express your doubts because your mom or your dad or the group might think you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe in the Bible. And so I think we, we tend to repress 
those doubts. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't. I'm saying people have it, and I think it shows in their life right. and, and their attitude. Right. I always seem to brush it under the rug, and I, I can think of times like that. It's just. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I knew that there was a question. But I said, "Well, I'll just believe it anyway." Yeah. Well, I would. I can remember reading things in the Bible, and and I would see things that look like a just a, an obvious contradiction to me. There are some things in Ecclesiastes that are not right. I mean, there are statements there that that uh, are not right. There are some contradictions, and yet I was being taught the Bible from the standpoint that the Holy Spirit dictated every word. You know, and that I would see other areas there that. Uh, that it just, uh, you know, it didn't ring a bell and whatnot, and yet I saw a lot of, lot of good. Well, I'm saying that I didn't come out with those questions, and, and, and by the way, a lot of them didn't have the problem because they didn't, like we got back early, didn't read. They just listened to the preacher, you know, and, and didn't read. But if you do, you read Ecclesiastes and, uh, and then try to tell, uh, read it from the standpoint that the, they're telling you that the Holy Spirit dictated every word there. You know, are, are and some and some of the other pass some of the other passages also. Don't you think, Paul, that we do have evidence though, and don't we don't call it that? Yeah, I'm just gonna I, I think get like with me when I was growing up. Same thing. I was never taught Christian evidences, but I think just the inner identification with the teaching is a, a form of evidence, and you just yeah. you begin to see that yeah. it works, and that is the best way to live. And you know, in your personal life, you see when you don't do it God's way, well, you think that night, you know, well, that really wasn't the best way or whatever. I yeah. think that's all. And you don't evidence. call it evidence, but right. it's intuition that you know. Right. Uh, now, what she said is, when it comes to law, that's the next point I was going to make, is that people haven't called it evidence, but they have had evidence. That the fact the law works, and that when they read the Bible, they had inner identification. They wouldn't call it evidence what it was. Right? When they read that person, that personality of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there was that tremendous inner identification, and they found themselves falling in love with that personality and saying, this is the only perfect personality I've ever come in contact with. That was evidence. Uh, when they read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and recognized the harmony between four individual accounts, they may have not said that was evidence, but it was like four different people telling them something about the same event instead of just one person. And so they didn't call it evidence. They just studied Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it would be like one person tells you something, maybe it's so, maybe it's not. Four different people tell you something, you have a lot more confidence in it. So that, that was evidence. And then when they read about the Apostle Paul, you know, they didn't see that event or anything like that. But it's pretty obvious that, that he's a pretty intelligent individual. And he's well-educated and, and all, and then he, he changes. And... Uh, that is evidence. So I'm saying that they have had, they haven't called it evidence, but it is. right? And then with your own parents, if your parents were sincere Christians, you've seen the devoutness of their own life, and and the way it affected them. You 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 couldn't help but contrast your parents to say others who were not believers, and you and you when you go to school, and here are the people that come from families that don't go to church. And here are those that come from those that, you know, that do. And there you pick up, I think, on all those things. But I believe that uh, it's like the person that has never sat down and articulated the existence of God from a cause and effect. But intuitively, he has. He knows he's here. He knows something doesn't come from nothing. He knows that for every effect, there's a cause. And he can see the beauty of the whole system. So he's never called that evidence but it, it has been. So I'm saying that uh, it's sort of like, uh, have you taken any psychology courses? No, I haven't. 
the rest of you be had some psychology courses. Have you noticed, noticed in psychology that a lot of things that the average person has picked up through their common experiences with life, they have articulated and, and, and give it a name. I'm saying there's nothing complicated about psychology. That, uh, but, and there are, there are older people out here that have lived their lives and brought up children that have more ability to counsel younger people than some of these people that have a degree in psychology. The difference is, in their counseling, they won't be able to use the right names. They can't say this person is a that, yeah. or this person is a that, right. and, and, and write it all up so somebody else can relate to it and all. But through their experiences in life, they understand what makes a good marriage and, and rearing your children and all of these type of things, you know, and, and they understand motives and why people do various things because they've lived it. They've been young before. So I'm saying they would not call themselves a psychologist and they don't have the words, but really this, this older man or older woman that has reared a family and has been a parent and a grandparent and had a lot of experiences in life may be a 10 times over better psychologist than somebody that has a master's degree in psychology. And so that you, you do have, and, I'm, and a person who has read the Bible and has experienced that inner identification and who has seen that way of life works. All right? And another thing to keep in mind, every, it, everything about the resurrection and everything is logical. I mean, is it illogical that, uh, that even though we blew it and sinned, that God who created us would love us and want us still to be saved. Uh, we've got a song that I dislike. It says, we'll never know why he died for us, speaking of Jesus, until we get there. You know, we'll understand it some, someday. Well, it tells you very plainly why he did. He loved you. Well, is, is that illogical? Uh, when you have a child one day, you're going to find that just because they do something wrong, that that doesn't do anything to the love that you have for the child. And, and how many, and if a, person gets arrested out there. How many parents have the attitude, well, they, do, they, they were arrested, they did something wrong, let them rot in jail. I don't want to have anything to do with them. Now, not too many parents have that attitude. Most of the time, the parents are right out there, and they're, 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 they want them to have a good lawyer. They're willing to post bail. They're willing to do everything they can to, to get that person out and, and to help them, even in wrong ways. And I'm not condoning that, but I'm saying that, that we're made in the image of God, and, and we're that way. And so is it illogical that God would want to bail us out and that would want to give us a second chance and, and everything like that? Is it illogical, like the hardest concept with Christianity is God becoming man? That's probably the most difficult concept for the Muslim, for the Jew, for the Hindu, like Li, the Chinese, or that most difficult concept. Is it illogical? God put us here in this body and he asked us to live our lives, and he gave us a law. Is it illogical that God would, would show us how it would, would come and put himself in a fleshly body, and that he would allow himself to be tempted in every way that we are, and yet show us how it's done? Uh, that, to my mind, is, is not only not illogical, it's almost demanded by logic. And, and so that everything I see in the gospel story is almost demanded of the, of the Creator. His mercy is demanded by His love. 
and 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 the and everything about the story is logical. So I'm saying that all of that was evidence, even though you didn't call it that. So what you've done, as you go through life, you've become more sophisticated in your use of evidences, and then uh, you need to learn though to articulate certain things to this person who didn't have the background. Like for example, this guy out here that has not been brought up in a Christian family. He hasn't experienced that inner identification with a lot of those things because he hadn't read it. And not only that, the pe type of people he's known that have called themselves Christians may have been a turn off to it. Right. Paul, do you think that to some extent we all do that? You know, we, we uh, accept things without evidence because I know there's certain things that I don't understand. You know, as you study, you, you come upon things that you don't understand. But because of evidences for other things that you've accepted, you know, the, the yeah, Bible that's all faith. points that you sure. don't understand it, but you still accept it mm -hmm. because of the other things, too. And I think to some degree, everybody does that. Sure. And there's nothing uh, you, uh, that, and that, in fact, there's a valid thing for it. If you can prove the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, then Jesus may say something that you don't understand. But yet you can say, I know that's right, and work on the understanding. And, and, and you have no, no doubt in your mind that the problem is with you and, and not with that. Let's look at the Old Testament. Uh, if you can prove the resurrection of Jesus, and then he turns around and endorses it, the law of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets and, and, and everything, well, then that's going to cause a bias. In other words, when I talk about bias, when I entered into a study of the Old Testament, I definitely am biased in favor of it just because of what he said and, and, and looking at the, the evidence there. And so if he quotes Isaiah with respect, I don't care what the liberal scholar has to say, that I'm, I'm looking in favor. Now, that doesn't prove it's right, and my examination of it may prove it's wrong. But I'm saying I'm actually beginning to look at it with favor. And sure, we, we all do that. And you do it in, as a finite human, human being. You can't operate any other way as you go through life, that you might have any number of people that tell you things that you didn't see, but you receive it with credits based on your past experience with that person. In other words, the evidence to you is that they're basically an honest person. And they've got no reason for lying on that point. And so you, you sit and listen to what they say and, and you think and, and, and believe it. We all, we all do that type of thing. But if what they're saying is of such a nature that, that it's going to demand something of you, then you're not going to, in other words, I'm saying the more important the information, the more inquisitive we become. If the doctor has prescribed some antibiotics for an earache and an ear infection, you just take it and you don't question him, you go on. But if that doctor has prescribed an operation on your heart, I'd say you probably want another opinion or two, you want to think about it, you want him to explain it to you because uh, this is a, a, a different type thing. So I'm saying the more important it becomes, and so the resurrection is much more important than a particular verse in Revelation or in Ecclesiastes. Uh, let's uh, call it for tonight, and we'll, uh, I didn't, we didn't, and we'll, next uh, week, we'll go ahead and continue on this with the idea of then developing an approach for reaching different types of people with different backgrounds, uh, anticipating the type questions and all, 
and an approach to just simply reaching uh, people, period. That's something I'm interested in, is how to, uh, I'm just thinking about one occasion that I had, and I really didn't handle things well because of wrong attitude on my part, and then on the other hand, I couldn't identify with where he was coming from. Because, I, but I think, well, I just don't know. I just like to know how to handle that kind of situation where you have someone that's not being raised, or even if they are raised, and they come to discredit it. I think the guy I talked to had been to Sunday school and all, and he, but he you know, evidently just rejected it out later on. Well, one thing, Mark, uh, just like I was reading this thing on Ted Turner. Do you all, everybody see that in the paper on him? If I had had some of the same experiences that he related there, I'd have a turnoff with, uh, uh, you know, I could see his problems with, with Christianity, that uh, some of the things he was saying that he was attributing to Christianity was really what I believe is, is false. You know, that uh, some of the churches up here, like I've visited the various ones up here, if I went in a place and, and people got all emotional and, and hollered and shouted and, and, uh, and carried on and everything like that, and then the preacher got up there and he didn't say anything in the way of evidence or anything, he just started talking about a burning fire and going to hell and uh, trying to get me to come down an aisle and all, I'd be sitting there all the time thinking, if I ever get out of here, I'll never come back. Now, maybe everybody, obviously, is not that way because they get a lot. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying that's me. That would, not, that would be an absolute <coughs> turnoff. Uh, I was raised in a neighborhood where the Roman Catholic Church was the number one factor. Well, man, uh, there is nothing in the Catholic Church that would turn me on. From what I saw, you know, that it was just a... Uh, uh, their building was just a big, awesome place that, that just intimidated the dickens out of me as a child, you know. I mean, just a, and then the way they dressed and, and everything like that, it was, it was just like uh, something that I just like to stand back at and look at out of curiosity. But there was nothing warm or, or anything like that. The, 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 the Catholics that I knew cussed, drank, ran around, Go to mass. and went to Mass. That's right. That was my experience. I'm not saying that there's no such thing as good Catholics. There are. But I'm saying that that was my experience. And so consequently, it was a joke. You know, it was uh, that it, it would have had no, no meaning to me whatsoever. So I can see how a person could have experiences that would cause them to be biased against Christianity. And, and, and yet I think that, that we have to get them to look at not who is professing Christianity, but at Christianity itself. And, and forget about all the denominations. Jesus said you know them by their fruits. And, and, and don't consider anybody a Christian except a person who is striving to follow Jesus. You know, that's, that's, a, that, that's a Christian. And it, I think if we can get Christianity away from denominations and everything else and, and just get it down in their minds that uh, it's a person, we don't judge anything else. Uh, on the, we don't judge communism on the basis of what anybody thinks about it except the communists and the way it performs, you know. And the same with our system. Paul, I've run into a lot of people that rejected Christianity. You know, they grew up in Christian homes or whatever, but they rejected it in high school or college or whatever. And their whole mentality about Christianity is based on a, a elementary grade Sunday school background. And they've never took, you know, they've got college degrees and all that, but they're still the, you know, what 
what their their base Christianity on is that that background they've got. How do you get them to take a look at a at Christianity in a serious type way? You know, like they look at anything else. You know, from from a you know from an intellectual point of view. Yeah. In other words, they're thinking of Christianity just the little stories and and yeah, uh, going to church and, and things they, like. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, they don't they don't they don't look at any kind. Of, they're not. You know, the evidence part of it, they've never even considered, and they, I mean, they don't even know it's there. Or all right, I believe the the uh, the good news is that, is the resurrection of Jesus. From the dead. I, I mean, that's that's the good news. Okay, I think that in talking with somebody, that everybody knows they're going to die, and the it can be presented in a, in a way that uh, would you be interested in examining the resurrection of Jesus from a standpoint of historical evidence and all part. If it's false, you've lost nothing but your time. If it's true, it could be the best news that you've ever had. In other words, can you think of anything that would be better news? than the possibility of living forever. And I think that uh, I, I can't conceive of anybody not having an interest in all there. And the problem with a lot of our church experiences, too many of the churches uh, don't put the emphasis on the resurrection. They just honestly don't. It's, it's just on some of the, it's on the church going activities. Now I know that in the way I was, when I, the church where I was converted and went, I heard more sermons on baptism than I ever heard on the resurrection. Uh, you know, that, uh, I don't know how many sermons I heard on baptism or why we take the Lord's Supper on the first day or why we don't use an instrumental music, why I am a member of the Church of Christ, uh, the true church, the qualification of it's elders. Uh, huh? It's kind of empty, too. Yeah. Well, see, they have their place. I'm not saying that. Uh, the, there's a place for studying the qualifications of an elder. Mm -hmm. and the church needs to know it, know it because they, so they can pick elders. They need to know the qualifications of deacons. Uh, you, there's a time to study whether or not you're going to use an instrument in your worship and, and why or why not. And, and the same with the Lord's Supper, you know, that obviously that uh, it has to be studied before you can do it. But what I'm saying is that it, it came to be a, what in, in our society, there was just always the assumption that everybody there believed in Jesus and believed in the Bible. And so consequently, each group concentrates its teaching on those particular doctrines that make their group unique from another one. Like when I went to the Baptist church, most common themes I heard was uh, premillennialism and uh, the, second, the second coming, you know, it cried with premillennial and once saved, always saved. I think, I, I don't believe you could go to any gospel meeting in a Baptist church and if you went several nights, you're gonna hear, you're gonna have, hear a lesson on eternal security and uh, something about being, you know, about uh, being saved by the Holy Spirit and things like that, you know. And premillennialism, and and so the emphasis there. We'll see. Take away those doctrines, and there's no reason for the Baptist Church to exist as a denomination. That's what makes it unique. Once saved, always saved. The Baptists are the only people that believe that. And so, if if you do away with once saved, always saved, and their concept of premillennialism, there's no reason for them to even exist. And and so, with each denomination, if you, when I go to the Seventh Day Adventist out here, well. They don't, I've never heard a lesson on the resurrection out there. It's not that they don't believe it. They just assume everybody believes that. They spend their time on the Sabbath day and on the various health codes and a whole lot about L.G. White. We'll see that because if they're wrong on the Sabbath day and L.G. White, 
there's no reason for the Seventh-day Adventists to exist as a body of people. You know, so that I'm saying that each group, and when you go to the Holiness Church, my experience has been that most of the sermons have to do with the Holy Spirit and the miraculous gifts. You know, that, uh, and, and then there are certain characteristics, like maybe the, the, the women uh, wearing, the, wearing their hair, not wearing makeup, not wearing jewelry, and uh, not doing certain things and whatnot. You know, a lot of those are things that make them distinct from other groups. So each group has a tendency to emphasize those things that make them distinct from other groups and what they're trying to prove to everybody you got you got to keep teach your own children you know that those are right because you don't want to wander off over here and go go be the baptist or the Seventh adventist or something like that you know so we've got to keep them saved and and so everybody just assumes and consequently you could spend several years there and not hear many sermons on the resurrection now ask yourself the question you see chuck's a young man but he's 22 uh, of course steve has a, a different background mark and all, all three of you have had experiences. In all your experience, before you became a Christian, since you've been a Christian, how many times have you had a sermon in a pulpit that was designed to present the evidence for the re no assumption, but designed to, to deal with the resurrection from the standpoint of proving that it was a historical fact? How many times have you heard that? Maybe once, if that. I'm thinking of a time when the preacher went in detail on what happened on the resurrection account. And okay, but now I'm not calling that evidence. I'm talking about proving that it actually was a historical event, that it's not just Probably a story in the Bible. Okay? How many times in any Bible class, in any Bible class, that you ever heard any mention about the manuscripts and, and, and how, how you go about ascertaining that they've been accurately transmitted down through the years? or that they was written, or, or how many times have you said in a class where you studied how you go about proving that, so in, that Paul actually wrote the letters attributed to Paul? It, it's, it's, not, it's not there. And so I'm saying, the, it's, and it's not because now some of those preachers haven't come in contact with that. They have. They don't. You're dealing with something that you, number one, you can't get it across in a 30-minute sermon. Uh, you're, you're, it, it, the people are going to have to be willing to study and things like that. And then there, see, most preachers tend to be people that were brought up as Christians. There's not too many uh, that I'm talking about in our world in the United States today. So they have a tendency to just assume the thing about the things about the Bible, you know. But to show you how important it is, that um, pardon me, I give you two examples. First, my younger brother. Uh, brought up and, you know, baptized and everything like that and got to Western Kentucky College and, and I got a call from mom and he was all disturbed because the, he was taking a course in New Testament and one of the first things he found out is there was over 250,000 mistakes in the New Testament manuscripts and, and he was just real disturbed and, and then the next thing he found out we did not have any of the original manuscripts so he didn't, he didn't realize that. Uh, and, and, of course, mom was calling me, and I went ahead and, and, you know, and I, of course, got with him, and we talked and all on that. Uh, but I'm saying that's what he had come in contact with right there. At Middle Tennessee, uh, the, a professor there that knew that I was preaching while I was going to school uh, come and got me 
and he asked me if he would, uh, if I would talk to a young man. See, I had went back to school. I was 25, 26, and I was preaching, going to school, and this kid was crying. And what it was in the uh, in biology class, he was a freshman. He had just, he was shocked. He never, he didn't know anybody believed organic evolution, and and thought that Genesis was a myth. And so when the professor put Genesis across as a myth and told him how it really was and then he took issue with that and quoted the Genesis to answer everything about organic evolution the people in the class laughed at him you know and he just he was shocked that they didn't believe the Bible you know and that if that didn't stand over what the professor said but he had come all the way through he didn't know that people literally believed organic evolution and that, that they believe, their people literally believed that Genesis was a, was a myth. That was his first contact with it. Dad, Paul, uh-huh. I have a compost cake, so y'all probably need to eat it. Yeah. But it, true faith, I'm convinced, is the stronger, the more studying that a person does, you, you only wind up with a stronger faith. And then more and more in our society, you're going to be talking to people who have not been brought up, you know, in, in that way. Well, before we quit, would you define faith? The faith involves, uh, now there's two types. I'm going to talk about the saving faith. Is that what you want me to define? Because the devils believe and tremble, for example, quote James. Number one, it involves intellectual belief of something. You, you can't trust in it unless you intellectually believe in it. So it involves intellectually be, believing something. But the Bible gives a number of examples of people that were intellectually persuaded and did not have faith. That uh, there were many of the rich people that came to believe in Jesus, but for fear of being put out of the synagogues, they wouldn't acknowledge. All right, so then the saving faith is when intellectual belief of something takes the step of putting your trust in that. And that's, and that's it. It involves the trust in it. And so I intellectually believe this map will take me to California. But I'm going to put my trust in it and go to California. And that, that would be uh, faith. I intellectually can believe that Jesus literally was raised from the dead and still make the decision not to put my trust in him. I might say that, hey, I'm going to have some fun now. Ten years later I will or whatever, you know. Or just like you can intellectually be persuaded that it's, it's foolish to smoke and still make the decision to smoke. And so that, uh, and, but, but it involves, first of all, the intellectual belief of something, and then second of all, putting your, your trust in it.